0: We invite you to remain standing out of celebration for God's powerful and perfect word and grab your copy of scripture should you have one and turn to Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. It's always good to have a Bible open in front of you as we study God's word together and if you don't happen to have one, we would invite you to use one of the blue Bibles that should be in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 869 as we come to what is a very famous teaching and instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ with the Lord's Prayer. Throughout the centuries, the Lord's Prayer has had a peculiar power in the Christian church. For centuries, along with the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer became the three main tools that Christians used to train one another, disciple one another in what to believe, how to behave, and how to commune with God. Even an early church father named Tertullian called... The Lord's Prayer, a compendium of the gospel. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, It is the form by which we're to judge all other prayers. And even a more modern author says, It's the prayer of prayers. Perhaps no set of words have been uttered as often and as frequently as these words that we are going to look at this morning. And not just those words, but additional instruction from our Lord on prayers. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm sorry, 1 through 13 of chapter 11. So, Let me go ahead and read our text, then pray briefly once again for God to bless our study, and we will begin. So let us hear now, for God indeed is speaking to us now through his word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut. And my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? And the flowers fall. Let's pray together once again. Father, we are grateful that your word does indeed stand forever, that it is the rock-solid foundation of our faith as it presents unto us your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us now as we come to a text that teaches us about prayer, a discipline that all of us, I'm sure, feel we fall so short in and want help from the Holy Spirit in this morning. So send the Spirit that we might be stirred afresh to renewed communion with you, to understand the truth of our Lord's teaching in this passage. Help us to come with hearts of eager expectation, expecting the Spirit to mold us into the image evermore of Jesus Christ. Help me to preach as I ought, as a dying man unto dying people, boldly and clearly, unsure of ever preaching again, and for us all to hear as if this was the last sermon we would hear, for we are not even promised another. And so help us, Lord, we... Pray, and now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. An old Anglican pastor by the name of J.C. Ryle once wrote a booklet called A Call to Prayer. And he begins his booklet by saying, I have a question to offer you. It is contained in three words. Do you pray? The question is one that none but you can answer. Whether you attend public worship or not, your minister knows. Whether you have family prayers or not, your family knows. But whether you pray in private or not is a matter between yourself and God. And then he goes on to give eight reasons for the question, one of which is, he admits that he asks the question, do you pray? Because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian And this morning we are going to get similar questions in our passage, not just do you pray, but what do you pray when you pray? Why do you pray when you pray? For Jesus is going to tell us that a devoted life of prayer is one of the surest signs that you are indeed one of God's children. So the simple main point that I want us to look at together this morning really is an exhortation. It's the exhortation to devote yourself to prayer because God is good. Devote yourself to prayer because God is good. It's true if you've grown up in the church that we often celebrate God's goodness, rightly extol him for his mercy and grace, that he is a good God. Even Psalm 119.68 says that he is good and does good. But have you ever thought to consider what might be some appropriate spiritual consequences of God's goodness? What kind of people ought his children to be when they behold and believe that God is good? Well, what we see throughout our text this morning is Jesus emphasizing the goodness of our Father in heaven. And for Jesus, one of the most natural things that his children do when they behold and they believe the Father's goodness is that they devote themselves to prayer, that they are prayerful people. So if you look down at the text, once again, the 13 verses that are before us, there are three kind of simple sections in the passage, even though it may be a little bit hard to see it in your Bible. Verses 1 through 4 uh, give us a model prayer. Why the Christians throughout the ages has actually referred to this almost as often as the model prayer. And then in verses 5... Through 8, we get a parable about prayer. So Jesus is going to tell us a story meant to illuminate and give us one particular truth regarding prayer we want to see. And then verses 9 through 13 give us assurances for prayer. So I just want to walk through each section together and see if the Spirit does indeed lead us to greater appreciation for God's goodness and thus devotion to commune with God through prayer. So first of all, we want to see the pattern of prayer. Look again at verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And if you've been with us in recent weeks and months through our study of Luke's gospel, you surely, I hope, have noticed by now how often Luke makes mention of Jesus' prayer life, that he's found praying all night long before he calls the disciples unto his name. It was his normal practice to get up early in the morning to go to desolate places that he might pray. But we've only heard it narrated before us and this is the first time in the passage we're going to get to actually see Jesus give some sort of a teaching on what is a very real discipline and practice in his life, this devotion to prayer. And it, becomes, and it comes through a request, notice, of one of his disciples. You see the end of verse 1? One? one of his disciples said to him when he finished, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. So this time in the early first century, the Jewish culture, the rabbinic schools of the day, would often find rabbis teaching a very particular form of prayer to their disciples, to kind of mark off, to distinguish their rabbinic school. And clearly, John the Baptist had already done so with his disciples, and so whoever this unnamed disciple is, comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, teach us to pray, meaning probably, give us the form of prayer that we ought to use. And kids, I wonder if you remember what a disciple is. Do you know what it means to be a disciple? It more literally means to be a student, to be a learner. So he's learning, whoever this disciple is. Teach me, O Lord, to pray. And I wonder if you could ask the Lord Jesus to teach you one thing, what you would ask him to teach you. I've often talked about this with pastoral friends. and If we pastors were to get together and say, Lord, we need you to teach us something, we probably would race to things like, Lord... Teach us to preach better. Lord, teach us to shepherd more lovingly. Or throughout the ages, Lord, teach us to exercise demons. Teach us to heal diseases like you have healed people from their iniquities. Teach us to even raise people from the dead. And all those things are good, aren't they? All those things might even be vital in ordinary gospel ministry. But they hang upon first the foundation of prayer. Lord, teach us to pray, the disciple says. And so what Jesus does is gives him five petitions. Now, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer comes, what most people at least memorize, comes from Matthew chapter 6. And remember, Jesus was a traveling teacher, an itinerant rabbi. And so he's going and probably preaching, teaching these different lessons, kind of all around where he's going. So Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6 gives us six different petitions. Well, Luke only gives us five. So let's just notice each of the five petitions that we get in this pattern of prayer. Notice verse 2. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father. Now you want to stop right there because we're prone to race past it. There was a 20th century scholar, New Testament scholar, by the name of Joachim Jeremias, a German theologian that was one of the most well known New Testament scholars in the world. And once he set, at one time in his study, he set himself a course to read through all of the Old Testament literature as much of the rabbinic school sources as he could get his hands on that were in Hebrew, and he discovered that it wasn't until the 10th century A.D. that Jews began to refer to God as Father. So when Jesus tells his disciples, begin by praying, Father, it would have been more startling, it would have been more shocking to them than it is even to us today. For isn't it so true that we often can begin to pray, Father in heaven? Or, oh, our Father who loves us. And do it so often that we forget to actually contemplate, meditate on, and revel in the wonder that he is our Father. So maybe what's good for us right from the outset of this prayer is to recollect the simple spiritual facts that the Bible tells us about who we are. And we're born into sin. We are dead in our trespasses from birth. We are, by nature, children of wrath. We have a father, and his name is Evil. We are God's enemies. He stands against us in judgment. We deserve his eternal punishment and wrath. And he knows that there's nothing we can do to satisfy this problem of our sin, to pay the penalty that it deserves. And so what did he do? He sent this man, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in the place of sinners as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of his people. He rose again three days later after he was buried. He ascended to the Father's right hand in heaven, now is ruling and reigning. And he says, turn from your sin and trust in me. And you who deserve to be thrown out of the king's palace, guess what you get instead? A seat at the table. You who deserve God's justice as his enemies, guess what you are now called? Sons and daughters of God. You who are hostile towards the Lord, you now can't help but love him, because he is your perfect Father in heaven. So you might be in here today and you're not a Christian. This is the great truth that we call the gospel, the good news, that sinners like you and me who deserve nothing more than God's justice, as our judge, He stands against you in your sin. But because of Jesus Christ, if you turn from your sin and trust in Him, He is no longer judge holy and righteous. He is also Father who loves you with abounding, everlasting grace and mercy. So you too can pray today and bow your knee for the first time. Father, notice what the request is, petition is, hallowed be your name. So number one, we adore God as Father. Hallowed be your name is simply a way of saying, let your name be holy. Protect and praise your name in the earth. For as God's name is honored, God's character is honored. As God's name is lifted high, his being is lifted high. And so we pray for his name to be announced. We pray for his name to be adored in our lives, in our churches and even around the world. So number one, the first petition is we pray prayers of adoration to our Father and secondly we seek the kingdom's advancement. Look at it verse 2 as it continues. Jesus says your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Uh, We know already from Luke's early chapters that Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He said repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. It is at hand. But it hasn't fully come yet. And so we should be people that pray for the kingdom to come in its fullness. I wonder if you long for the kingdom to come. Does it lead you to pray for the kingdom to come, the kingdom that brings with it our king and his beauty, the kingdom that brings with it an end to death, the kingdom that brings with it the wiping away of every tear, of all pain, all mourning is done when the kingdom come. Do you pray for the kingdom to come? And students, you need to know that as you pray for the kingdom to come, God will maybe do something you didn't expect. Because this actually, in some sense, in its context, is a profoundly militant prayer. Because as you pray for the kingdom to come, guess what the kingdom's going to do? It's going to overthrow and topple Satan's strongholds and push back the forces and the kingdom of darkness in the world. So as you pray the kingdom to come, what you might find out doing is God sends you out to preach the kingdom. That God sends you out to speak of the kingdom of light. In the midst of a kingdom of darkness. So we seek the kingdom in advance. Number three, we ask for our daily needs to be met. Look at verse three. Give us each day our daily bread. Kids, do you recall a time in the Old Testament when the Israelites got daily bread? Every day they woke up and bread was on the ground outside their doorstep. As you remember, the nation of Israel was wandering in the wilderness and God provided manna every single morning that they may be able to eat and find sustenance. And in the same way with that in the background, he's telling us to pray for our daily needs to be met. Our essential needs for living, that he would meet them in his mercy and grace. Sometimes people think to trouble God with their needs is a, is a genuine trouble to him. But what Jesus is telling us is that it's no trouble whatsoever to our Father in heaven. He delights to meet our needs. So we pray prayers of adoration. To our Father, we seek the kingdom in advance. We ask for our needs to be met. And then fourthly, we acknowledge our dependence upon his grace. Look at verse 4. And forgive us, Jesus says, our sins. Forgive us our sins. As much as you need daily prayer, as much as you need daily bread, you need daily confession before the Lord. Not an hour goes by in our life as we struggle towards heaven and fight against indwelling sin in which we will not sin. And so we must confess our sins unto the Lord and plead for his forgiveness, which he gladly gives us in his Son, Jesus Christ, to cover our consciences with his blood, to cleanse us from all iniquity. And I tend to find, maybe this is just my experience of pastoring Christians, that many Christians tend to be easier with the first part of verse 4 than the second part. Confessing sins to God, but it's much more difficult, notice, to forgive others. As Jesus says, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The same grace, Ephesians 4:32 says, that God has forgiven us with in Christ Jesus, we are to extend to others. I've been recently rereading a series of books that's rather popular and rather well known. It has a, a rather terrible villain. And this villain shows up for like the first time in a decade. And when he shows up on the scene, one of the first things he seethes forth is saying, I never forgive. I never forget. And Jesus here is praying for us to lose all hurt, bitterness, and animosity by His grace that would cause us to never forgive and to never forget. And instead of seething forth like this evil one, but to sing forth the mercy of God's grace in Jesus Christ that forgives us of our sins. So we acknowledge our dependence upon God's grace. And notice, fifthly, we admit our tendency to sin. Do you see what it says at the end of verse 4? And lead us not... To temptation. So students, you want to remember here that James chapter 1 tells us God doesn't tempt anyone. Uh, What Jesus is surely saying, as our shorter catechism talks about, is that we pray that Jesus would not lead us into temptation as much as he would help us when we are tempted. That he would keep us from temptation, but also deliver us and sustain us in the midst of temptation. So children, this should be an encouraging comfort to you. When you are tempted to sin, what you need to know is God is good and He wants you not to sin. He urges you to pray to Him for His aid, for His help in the midst of your temptation, that you would be delivered from it, that you might walk in holiness and obedience unto the Lord. So five simple petitions in Jesus' pattern of prayer. Number one, adore God our Father. Two, seek the kingdom in advance. Three, ask for our daily needs to be met. Four, acknowledge our dependence upon His grace. And five, admit our tendency to sin this is how we ought to pray and in verse 2 if you skip back up when it says when you pray it more literally means whenever you pray so it's something to the effect of we're not supposed to just pray these words with just rote memory as no sort of awareness is attached to them but these kind of prayers these five petitions ought to saturate our prayer life it's the pattern for all of our prayers and then to further help us in prayer now Jesus talks about persistence he calls us to persistence in prayer look at verse 5 and 6 And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And you want to stop right there and notice a couple things that would have been true of this uh, ancient Near Eastern context. First, it wouldn't have been odd for people to be traveling around at midnight. That's how they beat the heat at the time. But it would also have been an utter catastrophe and calamity to have a guest come to your home, In a culture that so valued hospitality and to open up the cupboard, open up the pantry and discover there was no food. Yesterday I was at one of my cousin's weddings and it seems to be probably the most appropriate analogy to our current context. And after the the wedding we went to the reception that was at the hall on Dragon Street. And so when the bride and groom showed up on Dragon Street, imagine if they had showed up into the reception room of 400 people and found that there was no food present You can imagine, can't you, the bride particularly, but also the groom, shocked at a lack of food. An inability to be hospitable to the guests they had invited. And such would have been the feeling of this person in Jesus' parable. So he goes knocking on a neighbor's door. But notice what the neighbor does in verse 7. He answers from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my my children are with me in bed cannot get up and give you anything. So in Jesus' day, it was very common for families to sleep all in the same bed. It would have been a gigantic bed on a raised platform in one room. Underneath that platform, creatures and critters have been scurrying about. And so to get up in the middle of the night, the dad would say, I've got to step over everybody along the way, and surely I'm going to wake up all the children, so just go home, I'll get you something in the morning. Well, what Jesus says is the man who needs the food, what does he do? He keeps knocking, doesn't he? Look at verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give you whatever he needs. So students, what is the reason for the friend getting out of bed to provide the food, according to Jesus? It's impudence. I wonder if you know what the word impudence means. It's probably not a word that you've used very often this week. If you have a different translation, it may say something like persistence, but it doesn't capture actually the original tone. It means something more like shameless persistence. (laughs) The nearest word I think we have for it in our culture is begging. Not nagging, but but begging. And Jesus here says, persist in prayer. Because even if this man will get up out of bed to give you the food that you need, how much more will the Father meet your needs when you persist unto him in prayer so earlier this week I came across a story of a boxer you may have heard of named Floyd Mayweather in 2007 he fought a prize match against Oscar De La Hoya it went 12 rounds which meant the boxing match that Mayweather won on a judge's decision it lasted 36 minutes and Mayweather's payday from that 36 minutes was 136 million dollars And it seems like a rather large, astonishing, amazing sum for such a small amount of work. But there is truth, isn't there, that it came on the back of years of training, years of work, dare we say years of persistence in his discipline. And do you not know that the Christian life, as we pray unto God, is somewhat similar? For weeks, for months, for years, persisting in prayer's requests for God to meet our needs. And Jesus encourages you to persist in it because God is good. So he gives us a pattern of prayer, calls us to persistence in prayer, and lest we need more fuel, or probably because we do need more fuel, he now gives us promises for prayer. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, students, if you've ever wondered what prayer looks like according to Jesus, he just gave you three verbs. It looks like asking. It looks like seeking. It looks like knocking. And you see how each, in each one of those verses, he gives us an assurance, a promise for such work. Prayer that when you ask, you will receive, that when you seek, you will find, and when you knock, the door will be open to you. Because he wants us to know how good our Father is in heaven. So, notice this kind of logic of absurdity that he goes into in verses 11 and 12. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent, and if he asks for an egg, instead give him a scorpion? You know, kids, that'd be like you going home today and asking your dad to make fish sticks in the oven. And what you get instead is a skewered snake on a kebab. (laughs) Here you go, son, this is your lunch. Or maybe waking up this morning, asking dad for eggs, and what he brings you is a plate of scrambled scorpions (laughs) instead. It's quite absurd, isn't it? And so what's the logic in verse 13? Notice what Jesus says. If you then who are evil, if you then who sin, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? How much more will our good Father in Heaven meet our needs? And in Matthew chapter 6, in the parallel passage in His Gospel, He has Jesus saying here, how much more, how many more good things will the Father give to those who ask? But you see how Jesus concentrates our attention? He he focuses our mind on the good thing. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's a promise, isn't it? And I wonder if you've grasped it and are using it. When was the last time that you prayed a prayer unto God, asking for the fullness of the Spirit to fall upon your life? Asking God for more of the comforter, Asking God for more of the counselor. Could it not be that maybe our small prayers for the spirit reveal a large esteem of our own power? That our infrequent prayers for the spirit maybe even reveal our frequent reliance on our own wisdom and strengths? I remember a pastor friend had one of his missionary friends from Asia come to visit him in the United States. And they kind of made a church tour around his city. And by the end of the time of this uh, Asian brother going back uh, to his homeland, dropping him off at the airport, he said to this pastor, you know, it's astonishing to me how much American Christians can do without God. And by that he meant, look at all these large churches and growing congregations, but where is prayer? Where is dependence upon the Holy Spirit? Devote yourself, Jesus says, to prayer, because God is good. God is good. So yesterday, after lunch, it been kind of a long and exhausting week, a soccer game was on, so we put the three older kids, our three younger kids, to bed, and the three older kids are watching a soccer game, and so uh, I said, hey, I'm going to go into my room, close the door, and take a short power nap, just 25, 30 minutes before I got to get up and do something else, and so I lay down quickly, put my head on the pillow, and fell asleep, and then about ten minutes later, the door burst open, and one of my children said, Benefica scored, Juventus is losing, <laughs> okay, thanks. Went back to sleep, 15 minutes go by, the door slams open again. Dad, Juventus scored, now the game is tied. Oh, I didn't realize you were sleeping, (laughs) is what he said. And of course, in my own flesh, there was a little bit of frustration at the interruptions. But I want you to know from this teaching of Lord Jesus Christ, that prayer unto the Father in heaven is never an interruption that frustrates him. He is the good God who longs to be with his people And meet your need. So as we begin to close, I just want to bring out two more implications from this text about our life of prayer. What Jesus is teaching us. What he's calling us to. As he's instructing, of course, even modeling his own life, devotion to prayer. First, the text calls us to revel in the intimacy of prayer. To revel in the intimacy of prayer. Think about the three verbs in our verses before us. Asking, seeking, and knocking. What Jesus is telling us is that when we go to God in prayer, we are not asking a frugal, divine being who is nothing more than a spiritual cheapskate to meet our needs. He is asking us to lay hold of the garment of him who rules over the world and delights to give good gifts, even the greatest gift to his children. He's not a Lord of the universe that's absent, that we can't find, that we go looking and looking, and it's always just playing a spiritual game of hide and seek. You can find him. You will find him, Jesus says. Nor is God the Father like someone who, when he hears knocking at the door of heaven, looks out through the people and says, no, nah, I don't think I'm in the mood today to entertain that conversation. He delights for his children to bow their knees before him, to reach out to him in faith, because he is their father. Yes, he's Lord. Yes, he's judge. Yes, he's king. But he is the merciful, good, loving Father who loves to be with His children, and the ordinary way we are with Him is through prayer. I remember reading a story of uh, Dr. Ed Clowney, who for a long time was the president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he once went to the professor of systematic theology at the time, a guy named John Murray, uh, to ask for particular counsel on this personal issue he was dealing with, and John Murray, by the end of his counsel, uh, began to pray for... Uh, Dr. Clowney. And Dr. Clowney recalled to a, a later student, he says that I was overwhelmed with the sense of God's absolute majesty in Professor Murray's prayer. The presence of God was instantly palpable. And as encouraging as its experience was, it was also deeply convicting. Just hearing him pray to God revealed to me that my own prayers were wooden, formal, and mechanical. I knew little of the familiar conversation with God In his presence. And such familiar conversation with God. The father in his presence. Is what Christ longs for all of his disciples. For you to have by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning. Hear the call of Christ. To revel in the intimacy of prayer. But also secondly. To renew your expectancy. In prayer. Persist in prayer Jesus says. Because notice all of these promises. That come from our good God who delights to hear his children. Have you ever just kind of scanned through the scriptures before and paid attention to what has happened in redemptive history because of expectant prayer? Through expectant prayer, the Red Sea was parted. Through believing prayer, the mouths of lions were shut. Water poured forth from a rock. Manna fell from heaven. Fire came down upon Elijah's altar. The mouths of kings were stopped. The armies of enemies were crushed. The dead were raised. The sick were healed. The lame were made to walk. And souls were saved because of expectant prayer. So this then is our pattern of prayer. Five petitions that are to mark our life as followers of Christ. He exhorts us, doesn't he, to persistence in prayer. To knock, to keep knocking, to seek, to keep seeking, to ask to keep asking because God will meet that need for He has given us the promises based upon God's sovereign goodness. Your Father is good. He delights to be with you. So devote yourself to prayer because God indeed is good and does good to us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are merciful and gracious towards us in Jesus Christ, that we who are prone to wander, that we who are prone to fall into sin, find forgiveness only because of what Christ has done for us. And so help us, we pray, Lord, to uh, walk forward in greater awareness and appreciation and exaltation of your goodness. Uh, Let us be a people that indeed renew our devotion to you in prayer, that you would help us by the Spirit to bend the knee more than we do, to yearn for the prayer closet more than we do, that we might commune with you, that you might meet our needs and glorify your name and make it holy in our lives. And Lord, we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends.